Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media won't ask, right here at sfm.scot. Hi there, I'm John Cole and this week refereeing decisions once again are the talk of the steamy, this time accusations that Celtic manager Brendan Rodgers pressured goal line ref, is that even a thing? Don Robertson into doing something nice for Celtic after last week's penalty that never was in Dingwall. There has been a deafening silence in the Dave King share saga, possibly because of the noise surrounding the two Scottish Cup semi-finals that took place this weekend. Yes, football was actually played and our congratulations go to Aberdeen and Celtic who qualify for the cup final and will face each other at Hamden on May the 27th. The trial of the century, or the week at least, began in Glasgow on Friday as Craig White had the first of his days in court to face charges of pretending to do all sorts of things upon his purchase of Rangers. Three of the words in that sentence had to be in quotes, thus demonstrating the inadequacies of spoken English in the 21st century. Our guest today, legal reporter James Dolman of Byline, will help us cut through the chaff and get to the heart of the matter, and more from James later. I'll also be paying tribute to another of my heroes, the much-loved Kilmarnock captain of the mid-1960s, Frank Beatty. Lots to talk about then, so let's get going. Well, the big news to emerge from the weekend is that Aberdeen and Celtic will will progress to the Scottish Cup final at Hamden on the 27th of May. An historic occasion in many ways. For both clubs, it's a replay of the final exactly 50 years ago. Uh, For Aberdeen, it's their first final since 2000 and their third since their last one in 1990, which was also against Celtic. For Celtic, it's an opportunity to win a treble, just like that team of 50 years ago, who also went on to win the European and Glasgow Cups in the same year. Whatever, it's a game between the two most consistent sides in the league this year, and it will hopefully be as good a spectacle as both of the semi-finals were. Holders Hibs did not give up the trophy easily on Saturday against the Dons. Despite going 2-0 down very early in the match, they recovered well, and in fact looked the more likely winners until Johnny Hayes' fortuitous deflection snuck inside the Hibs post. The other semi-final was less of an on-field contest, but still an entertaining contrast of styles, and as you would expect, generated most of the post-weekend column inches. Despite the disappointment felt by both losing managers, they both took defeat in a dignified and sporting fashion. Sadly for Hibs, the spectacular sight of their goalie, Ofer Mir Marciano, and the Aberdeen penalty box connecting with a last-second corner kick and heading the ball goalwards in search of an equaliser brought a save from his Dons counterpart, Joe Lewis. Equally sadly for Rangers, they were up against a Celtic side who just never gave them a sniff in the first 45 minutes, and they found to their cost, as many teams have this season, that when better players play to their best, you just have to take it in the chin. Of course, the mainstream media can't have that. Griff said it was never a pen, says Tav in one paper. I never said that, says Griff. In the same paper. The definition of fake news? Absolutely. Claims too that Brendan Rodgers' comments on Don Robertson, who was last week's ref when Ross County and Celtic played, and goal line ref, is that even a thing? At Hamden on Sunday, may have pressured the goal line ref, 
into awarding Celtic a penalty. Hmm. Making life more difficult for the Rangers manager, uh, Pedro Cachinha, is the reaction of Rangers fans to his smiling chat with Brendan Rodgers after the game. I thought that Cachinha wanted to get up that tunnel as quickly as he could, but he was being polite. Like Neil Lennon, he smiled wistfully as he wished his opposite number congratulations. For both losing managers, in fact, a dignified end to a wonderful set-piece occasions, and that was appropriate and does them both credit. Both Derek McGuinness, uh, McInnes and Neil Lennon, of course, will be probably be thankful for the more prosaic approach to their encounter in the media, but the fact remains that managers are often isolated in defeat in a way that players are not. A wee bit of moral support from each other is understandable, and a reminder to us again that what went on for the 90 minutes previously is a sport, not a war. All four in the semi-final, or all four of the semi-final managers illustrated that perfectly for me. And credit to them all for that. Meanwhile, in the Championship, the spotlight was turned off as the Cup semis were played out and the Premiership itself had a day off too, but business still had to be done. Falkirk and Dundee United both won against Dunfermline and St Mirren respectively, while Smorton, who are flagging a wee bit, had a 1-1 draw with new badge guys, Air United. You need to watch that badge, by the way. It's uh, something else. With two games left each, Falkirk and Dee United uh, look to be vying for second place, with Morton definitely, I think, running out of steam. This, week- this weekend may see the final placings decided, but as Falkirk still have the edge, then Dee United will be hoping that they can take it to the last week to avoid playing an extra playoff tie. St Mirren at the bottom of the table, their defeat puts them back in playoff territory and next week's game against Reth Rovers, who won at the weekend, is now a crucial one for both of those sides. To avoid automatic relegation, Air United will probably have to win both of their remaining fixtures. Maybe a wee rub in that new badge eh, might bring a bit of magic, who knows. But whoever's in the playoffs in the championship eh, going down the way will have to contend with any one of seven teams still in with a chance of making the League One playoffs. In fact, Strindrar in League One could be in a playoff for promotion or for relegation. That's just how tight it is down there. So there's still a lot to play for uh, in all the divisions and we'll be watching. Don't forget that you can subscribe for free to the SFM podcast, including the weekly monitor. And you can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or on iTunes. Please go there. Uh, or to one of those two places and have a look at our previous episodes we hope there's something in there for everybody James Dolman is an award-winning journalist who rose to fame for his coverage of the Tommy Sheridan and Andy Coulson trials James has been covering the various Rangers-related litigation in court since it all started a few years back and has provided an insightful and factual ballast to much of the hysteria surrounding these proceedings that has appeared in the mainstream and social media outlets alike. With the Craig White trial finally getting underway on Friday of last week, I spoke to James after court Monday to ask him to set the scene for us and to provide some background to the case. James, thanks for speaking to us today. The Craig White trial, it's been awaited with interest by most of Scottish football stakeholders groups and, and of course you're covering it on Twitter and on your byline site. Firstly though, I wonder, could you put us in the picture with the background to the trial with regard to the actual charges? Alright, well Mr White faces two charges, um, both based on the takeover of Rangers in 2011. Um, 
The first charge is that he essentially uh, was engaged in a fraudulent takeover. Uh, uh, he didn't have the funds when he said he had the funds. And the second part is a, is a sort of more obscure expense under the Companies Act, which is to do with him lending money to his, from one of his own companies to another one. It's a sort of technical issue under the Companies Act. So those are the two charges, Mr. Whiteface. Do you think that the interest in in, in the proceedings uh, has translated into bigger court attendances? I mean, I know you do this a lot, uh, but but the interest in this particular case, do you think that um, that it's it's bigger or higher than usual? It's reasonably busy in court. It's not terribly busy. Um, it's, it builds up over time. I mean, you always start off; it gets quite slow, and as a trial goes on, it, it's a strange phenomenon. But the longer the trial goes on, the more people tend to go see it. So what you'll find is people read about it in the papers or, or following it on TV or on Twitter and they decide to go down. And that's, that's So what we see is a tennis season there's maybe 20 people on the court at the moment. That'll probably go up. But it's a, it's a large court. It's court four in the high court. It's, it's a very large court. It's plenty of room in it. Press tendencies? Are there a lot of journals there? Oh yeah, there must be at least 10, 15 journals there. Uh, all represented. It's interesting to see that, I don't know if you know the BBC have got someone tweeting at uh, Radio Clyde. So the tweeting thing, which is, you know, a couple of years ago we couldn't do at all. We weren't allowed to do it in court. Uh, now we're doing it. And you're seeing that sort of transforming court reporting all about it. it. gives journalists, rather than just sitting taking your notes, people are live tweeting out. So there's plenty of sources out there for information and real time for people, which is great, you know. The actual mechanics of of, of doing the job, uh, you know, I would imagine would be a challenge at, at some points. For instance, is, is it easy to hear what's going on? Uh, it depends where you sit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's reasonably easy to hear. People get confused if you're in the court. You see them, but someone walks in, they see these microphones in front of them, and they assume they're going to be. There's a technology they're going to be amplified, but they're not. The microphones are just to record it. So yeah, but yeah, it's a, that court, I said court four is quite a modern court. As the acoustics are reasonably good, of course, people it's a stressful situation and people can mess up a question. But in general, you know, the courts are quite a good court. I find the acoustics in it fine. And and if you don't hear something, if you miss something, do, do, do you get any second chance? Maybe by reference to the court reporter or the council themselves? Hey, not usually, no. Right, okay. So, so the challenge is to listen very carefully then, I take it, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, the challenge is that, and also if you're not even, if you're not 100% about certain, about something, don't do it, don't put it out. You know, but I, I sit with a notepad in my phone. So mechanically what is, I'm writing it down as I go. And I sort of shorthand, and then that becomes a tweet. Yeah, so so you take it shorthand uh, first of all, and then you'll compose your tweet. Uh, you know, but perhaps when there's when you when you've got a minute to do that, and uh, you know, I mean, I noticed the, the the tweets come very very regularly. So obviously, you you, you must have become quite adept at doing it. I, I know that uh, some of the guys for SFM who have been at court uh, uh, the same time as you are, are are quite astonished by how how accurately that you can report. I've been doing it for a few years. I started doing it in London at uh, the phone hacking trial, so I have plenty of experience. I think it's just a matter of just learning as you go. Um, the key thing for me and, and for people following it is you need to pick out what bits you think are important. You obviously can't treat every work. That's impossible. So you have to know the case well enough to go, well, no, this is important. This is an important thing. I should maybe send this out. And hopefully that gives that a flow. But as I said, the good thing about this case is having two or three people tweeting it, it does a much better level of coverage because things that I might miss Someone else will yeah. pick up and people get the full picture. You're talking about the experience there, but, but, but do you need any specific training or knowledge in order to be able to translate proceedings into layman's language? I, I think the main thing is you've got to understand that trials are designed for layman. I mean, the jury are the people who decide. I mean, sometimes early on in a case when it's a legal argument, you can find it difficult to follow. But at this point, because it's been explained to the jury, it's, it's easy to follow. It's designed to be followed by lay people. You know, it's not 
complicated or anything like that. Yeah, so it's not it's all put not, in a way they can understand. So there's not a kind of deliberate closed shop situation going on there between the legal people. <laughs> no, no. No, well, but both the council, I mean, Mr. Finlay is, is obviously an excellent council, and Mr. Prentice, who's the advocate deputy, is both an excellent council as well. So those two, you know, are doing, I think, a great job of explaining the case and, and putting in a form of order. We've got a long way to go, of course, but, you know, I think the, the case is developing, you know, reasonably well, and it's, it's always good to see that after so much pre-trial stuff that we've had, the, the jury finally getting a chance to judge the case. I mean, that's the most important thing now. There's a jury properly selected, which is getting a chance to actually make a decision, which is you know, what the system's all about. I know that you, you don't want to be specific to the case. In fact, that you know that you can't be in, in in many situations. But but in general, how much of what goes on in in these types of things is forensic, and how much is plain to the jury by the advocates? It's all about evidence. I mean, any case is always about the evidence, what's introduced and what's not. I think what people don't understand about courts, and it can be a bit confusing when you first go, is everything has to be proved. Nothing can be asserted. So. At one point of the reading of an address, they have to have documentary evidence. So they see Rangers Football Club at such and such an address. They have to have a document to prove that. Or a phone number has to be done. So everything has to be proved. Nothing can be assumed at all. Uh, so, you know, that, that to me is the interesting part. Every step has to be gone through and every every part has to be proved so a jury can make a decision. So I don't think, that, I don't know about forensic, but it's very detailed. I mean, no, no one assumes anything. But again, you know, that's, a, that's part of the process. Nothing can be assumed. Is it maybe for people like me who are used to watching courtroom dramas and things like that, that you, that you, that you look at that plain to the jury uh, as being something that goes on when in fact maybe it doesn't go on quite as much? As I said, I've always, I've always felt it's about the evidence. The job of a good advocate is to marshal the evidence properly and, and present it to the jury. You go to the other thing, the way it works, no matter what a stunning speech the closing counsel might make, the last word always goes to the judge, and the judge will spend a bit of time and go through it piece by piece. The last act, the last thing a jury hear before they go out, is a judge going through every single piece of evidence with them and instructing them on which bits they can listen to and what bits they should ignore. So I think the, the, the strange things I, I watch courtroom dramas is there's always a surprise. Now, the funny thing in court is there's very rarely a surprise. Everyone knows everyone else's case. It's not a done thing to spring a surprise on anyone. It's generally very frowned upon. So in some ways, like, Everybody knows that the, the, the advocates all know what they're going to say, know, know what their case is in advance, and there's no someone running in those dramatic piece of paper. I don't think I've ever seen that happen. In this particular case, what, what restrictions are you working under and, and what latitude do you have when you're putting your byline column and your tweets together? It's this usual restriction, which is the simple one that it's everyone deserves a fair trial. No, nobody's trial should be affected by any publicity. So all you report is what the jury hear when they hear it, you don't report anything else, you don't comment, you don't add information to anything the jury might, might hear or might not hear. And as long as that, that's, that's the restriction, and I think it's absolutely right. If it was any of us on trial, I think we'd want exactly the same yeah. protection. You know? Yeah, well, we'd be actually saying that to, to, to people on the on the blog as well. You know, that, that, uh, that, that there's a lot of hysteria around there, and I know that a lot of social media sites tend to extrapolate uh, from from what goes on from the little that they you know the information that they get and that that, that, you, that it seems to me that uh, that it's only fair that uh, that that we shouldn't be doing that you know that uh, that everybody as you say does deserve a, a fair trial and also I'd prefer not to be in contempt of court myself yeah I mean it's, it's it's a difficult one I think one of the problems the legal system has been wrestling with for a while uh, is to do with social media now say for example I met you in a pub and I told you something that maybe the jury hadn't heard, some piece of information I'd picked up. 
There'd be no crime about that. I'd be no against the law. I could perfectly easily tell you. I'd keep a group of five or six of us. I could tell the five or six people. But if I put that on Twitter, it suddenly becomes publication and it suddenly comes under the, all the rules of contempt of court. But yet many people still treat Twitter as a conversation for having with someone. Yeah. So, so that's, there is a real issue with that. I mean, because let's be honest, I mean, we go through training, we get experience, and we've got lawyers we can consult if we're not sure about something. The average person on Twitter doesn't have any of that. But they're still being treated under exactly the same rules and regulations we are. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real problem. I don't know the solution personally, but, you know, the jury are simply instructed not to read social media for the duration of the case and not to discuss it with anyone. And, you know, the system works on the basis that jurors do as instructed and will be doing that. But but I think the point that I was making, though, was that, you know, that there is a self-preservation thing about not wanting to be in contempt of court. But at the same <laughs> time, you, you, you also don't want people to uh, to be prejudiced either way. Exactly. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And then it's up to that jury now. They decide. They, they act on behalf of us and decide. And it's important that no one interferes with that or gets in the way of that process. Okay, well, how about the individuals in, in this particular case? I mean, I know that, that there's two witnesses, well, three witnesses now uh, that ha have been called uh, who are probably very much the VIP, high public profile uh, type uh, as well. But but the advocates and the judge are also a big part of it too. Is, is there a contrast in court uh, with, with the advocates uh, or is there a similarity in their styles? No, they're very... Uh, Mr Prentice, uh, who um, I prosecuted Tommy Sheridan, which is was a long case of something. Mr. Prince is an excellent, excellent Crown advocate. To explain the role of the Crown, in Scotland, the Crown doesn't prosecute. We call on the prosecution, but they're not supposed to prosecute. All they're supposed to do is just lay out the facts. Here's what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Here's, here's facts in relation to this indictment. Uh, so that's their job, and that's what Mr. Prince does. I think everyone would agree extremely well. Uh, Mr. Finlay is a very experienced defence lawyer and very good at what he does. You know, very, um, you know, so again, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to hear both of them actually most of the time. They're both very, very good. Uh, but so, but but no contrast in their styles. Then they're, they, do you think that they're that they're more or less they just play a straight back to to the court in order for, to to maintain what you said earlier, which was to uh, to to make it clear to the layman just what's going on. Oh yeah, I mean they're both they're both both QCs, both top advocates. They're both very very good at what they do. I, I'm not I don't want to comment on individual styles and stuff like that. Uh, but they're both very, very, they play a different role in the, and everyone has a role to play in a court case and they play different roles, you know. Is is there anything significant that's, that, that, that's come to light so far? Anything that, that wasn't in the public domain so far that that, um, that, that surprised you from the, the evidence? There's yeah, been a number of things. A number of things have come out. It's, it's just all about the detail. Again, I don't want to get any highlighting particular parts of evidence. I mean, it's all in our report, it's in our reports and on Twitter. It's always interesting when you hear these things firsthand, like what Smith said and what Mr. McCoy said. And today, you know, we've got the finance director up as well. So it's always interesting to hear that detail and stuff. But again, it's a part of what you, the restrictions and the rules are. You don't comment on it. You don't say, oh, this piece of evidence is more important than that other piece, because that, again, is, could be seen as comment. Mm -hmm. are, are you allowed to interpret the advocate's strategy even from, from uh, observing their, their, their first couple of days' performances? I mean, obviously, th <laughs> that would be a more general uh, kind of observation about what was going on as opposed to specifically, uh, you know, like zooming in on some of the evidence. Uh, it, it's, it's very early to tell. I mean, we've only been in two and a half days. Yeah. It's just way too early to tell. What, what, I mean, obviously, Mr. Finley's strategy is to defend his client which means that showing that the defence isn't proved, you know, the reasonable doubt. 
And I think there was a lot of people read the reports tonight. It was some extremely interesting stuff came out today uh, that I don't think many of us knew about the, the situation when White took over. Um, so, yeah, it's, so you, you read all about that tonight, I'm sure, in your papers tomorrow morning. But it's a bit early to tell. Cases have a strange way of going in a direction no one quite expects, you know. But of course, it's again that cautionary note as well about the, the if things are coming out that, that have not previously been in the public domain, it's always worthwhile holding back uh, on, on your own conclusions until you've actually heard all these things. Hmm. Exactly, but yeah, I think I mean people will be to the post today. But uh, overall, I think that to me, a trial is also about closure. We know that what happened with Rangers upset a lot of people. You know, you know, a lot of people who loved that loved that club and you know felt terrible what had happened to them. And it's good that the details are coming out. That's why it's so important these things happen in public. There's been three witnesses so far: uh, Ali McCoy, Walter Smith, and uh, Donald McIntyre. Today, uh, McIntyre's back on tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Mr. McIntyre's uh, back on tomorrow because uh, Mr. Finley hasn't completed his cross examination. Just another wee word about contempt. Predicting the outcome, predicting future witnesses is also a bit of a no no as well, I'm afraid. All right, okay. Yeah, but we haven't because he's already uh, obviously been, been here, so yeah. we're, not, we're not really predicting very much. Oh, so I, just in case you're going to say who's up next. No, 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 no. No, oh, no, absolutely not. No, I, was, I wasn't going to say that. Although I'm walking the next shelves here talking to you, to, to, to be fair. I mean, it is, I mean uh, there's, there's something about obviously your experience now, and uh, you know, you, you've done this for so long, and you, you're experienced in the ways of the courts. But anytime I've ever been inside a court, I, you know, I, I feel as if I'm in a church. I, you know, I feel intimidated is probably not the word, but but I feel as if I, you know you really need to watch what you're doing, where you sit, what you say, who you say it to, uh, and it's that there's an aura, I suppose, about it, isn't there? Well, I mean, they're, they're amazing buildings. Think about it. There's no any other part of the building that you go into and there's a chance you're never coming out. You're going to you're actually transported and put in a jail cell, <laughs> and they have a tremendous amount of power. Court. Just people's liberty, people's reputations, people's financially, the issues that people go through. And I think one reason I was I started court reporting and getting into it was people don't know a lot about court, so they can feel intimidated when they go. I think the more people know about it and read about it, the more comfortable people will be in, in that situation, whether it's as a witness or on a jury or, or even a defendant. Are we allowed to predict how long the, the, the trial might take? Or, 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 do we have any idea? Uh, we, we can report that the judge told the jury she expects it to last 12 weeks. 12 weeks. So the, mm. that, that would suggest then um, perhaps a lot of uh, witnesses, it would suggest an awful lot more evidence from, from what we've seen now. Well, I mean, there's a long way to go and we're very, we're on, we're a very early, early stage of the trial at the moment. I mean, really, we're just I mean, establishing certain, the, the, what, what the, the, the Crown are doing is establishing certain points of things that happen. So today, for example, they established that Craig White did buy, buy the shares and he bought them from David Murray. That's most of the purpose of today was to establish that that actually happened, you know. So the so the fields of justice are, are, are quite slow at turning then? I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. James, everybody who's on SFM knows who you are. They they also know that uh, that, you, that you're tweeting this out. And they know that you've got a col- uh, column in byline, which I will tell everybody about when you go away. But, but listen, th- th- thanks a lot for coming on and, uh, and, and keep up the good work. Cheers, nice talking to you, thanks. James Dolman there, and thanks very much to James. You can access James's website by looking for James Dolman on www.byline.com. The full address to James's page on Byline is in the caption on the player at podcast.sfm.scot. 
One of the things that always strikes me when I speak to James Dolman is the great respect he's got for the courts, for the legal profession and for the justiciary. My own Hollywood-fed preconceptions about life inside a courtroom are only just alien to James. To him, they're the antithesis of what the process of justice is all about and of his belief that they will probably get things right in the end. James's style reflects the environment in which he works. Perhaps we can call him the Joe Friday of Scottish journalism, in fact. Just the facts, ma'am. That's all I need. It's also why he can be trusted to report factually, accurately and with a degree of authority in what goes on inside those rooms and buildings. And our thanks go to him for taking the time to speak to us today. As we alluded to in that piece with James, there's a lot of hysteria, a lot of speculation going on in social media and mainstream media as well over these court proceedings. Speculating on the innocence or guilt of a defendant or the honesty of a witness is most definitely contempt of court territory. For obvious legal reasons, SFM wishes to stay on the right side of the law and avoid unnecessary problems with the courts. But we also want to ensure that we're not party to contaminating people with speculation that may lead to a defendant being mistakenly either convicted or acquitted. The point of a trial is to establish what the facts of a case are, not merely to validate so-called information or inferences that have been drawn before any legal processes have begun. We're asking everyone at SFM, therefore, to refrain from posting anything that implies guilt or innocence, truthfulness or untruthfulness, or anything which repeats unsubstantiated rumour. We may think that we know it all, but it may well be the case that we discover through the course of our trial that we know less than we thought. So please keep that in mind and keep me and Tris out of jail at the same time. Thanks for your forbearance. And now, just before we go, let's talk about Frank Beatty. Frank Whitfield Beatty uh, was a Kilmarnock legend, a one-club man. Now, sadly, a rare thing in football, but Frank spent his entire playing career with Kilmarnock, making 422 league appearances between 1954 and 1972, and was club captain when they won the Scottish League Championship in 1964-65. Beatty was born in Stirling on the 17th of October 1933. He moved from school to juvenile level uh, with Danny Pace and then Cowie before taking another step up the ladder to the junior ranks with uh, Bonnie Bridge Juniors. His performances were catching the eye of several senior clubs, but Malcolm McDonald got in there first, signing Frank for Colmarnock in 1953. It was a year before he made his first team debut against St Myrna at Love Street in a League Cup match, that was in September 1954. Although he scored for Kelly that day, playing in the unfamiliar position of inside right, he was dropped until October of that year when he turned out against Partick Thistle, scoring again. It was the following season before Frank would be established in the first team, but his career really took off with the arrival of former Rangers legend Willie Waddle as manager in 1957. Waddle moved Frank, then an inside forward, to a half-back position, right half in fact. In his first season in his new role, 1959-60, Kelly ended up runners-up to Champions Hearts and were beaten in the final of the Scottish Cup by Rangers. In the following four seasons, Kelly finished second in the league another three times. Um, Beattie was becoming more and more of an influence in the Ayrshire side at that time. And during that time, in fact, Frank was moved to left half. 
the position I can remember seeing him play in. And in 1963, uh, he was made club captain. The highlight of Frank's career was in the 1964-1965 season. Kilmarnock, as league runners-up the year before, were in the Fairs Cup and were drawn in their first ever European match against Eintracht Frankfurt, who had participated in arguably the most famous club football match ever to have been played. That was against Real Madrid in the European Cup final at Hamden in 1960. The first leg saw Kelly beaten 3-0, and in the return leg at Rugby Park, they went further behind early on. By half-time, they had scored twice themselves, but that left them two goals shy in aggregate, and then throughout that second half, a beauty-inspired Kelly took control and scored another three times, the winner coming seconds before the final whistle to scenes of absolute bedlam in Ayrshire. The final day of the league in that season was against Hearts at Tynecastle. Coincidentally, that final scheduled game turned out to be between two teams in positions one and two of the table, Hearts at the top and Kelly in second. Hearts were two points ahead and had a better goal average. And because of the arithmetic associated with the goal average system, Kelly had to score two goals or more with no reply to pip Hearts to the title. Two goals from Davies Sned and Brian McElroy within half an hour did just that. And despite being bombarded by the Jambos' attack for the remainder of the game, Beatty and his partner, centre-half Jackie McGrory, stood up to everything that Willie Wallace and company could throw at them to keep the necessary clean sheet. The iconic pictures of manager Waddle running onto the field to embrace his captain at full time is something that this young Celtic fan in the day remembers, just as well as that other iconic scene that was taking place at the very same time at Hamden when Celtic won their first Scottish Cup in a decade. Amazing when you think that a league decider and a Scottish Cup final were played on the same day. SFA, eh? Some things never change. Frank B therefore became the first Kilmarnock captain to bring a major trophy to Rugby Park since Martha Smith in 1929, a feat that wasn't emulated until the club's Scottish Cup won in 1997 and their League Cup won in 2012. Frank went on to beat Martha Smith's club record for league appearances on the 20th of December 1969 in a match against Celtic at Parkhead. The match programme was in the main a Celtic tribute to beat his inspirational qualities and his dedication and loyalty to Kilmarnock. Ironically and tragically, Beatty suffered a compound fracture of his leg, his left leg it was in fact, after catching his foot in the turf attempting to tackle Jimmy Johnson very early on in that game. I was actually at the match behind the goal uh, and I heard the snap. It was what should have been a big celebration for a great man turned to be turned out to be the beginning of a two-year layoff and effectively ended the career of Kilmarnock's most successful and inspirational captain. It would be two years before Frank came back for that injury and at 38, uh, he made his 600th appearance for Kelly against Motherwell. After retiring as a player, uh, Frank went on to manage Albion Rovers for a year and Stirling Albion for a year as well before returning home to Canvas Barn where he ran a newsagent shop. But he wasn't finished with football just yet. He took over as manager of local Canvas Barren Rovers in 1976 and two years later he led them to victory in the Scottish Amateur Cup. Sadly in 2000 Frank contracted Parkinson's disease succumbing to the illness in 2009. In a fitting gesture to one of the true Kelly greats the West Stand at Rugby Park was renamed the Frank Beatty Stand. A fitting tribute to a loyal servant, a great player, an inspirational captain and a lovely man. 
But he is another player whose exposure to the world and, and to international football, just one league cap and in a very illustrious and successful career, has been limited. And the rich tapestry that illustrates the Scottish game, beat his colour was maybe not as bright and saturated as some, but it was a deep and indelible Kelly Blue, the very bedrock of that club and a cornerstone of our national game's history. Frank B was loved by Colmarnock fans, but he also drew deep affection from the fans of other clubs too. That Celtic programme and that bittersweet day for Frank in 1969 is proof of that. Don't forget that you can subscribe for free to the SFM podcast, including the weekly monitor, and you can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or on iTunes. Please go there, uh, or to one of those two places, and have a look at our previous episodes. We hope there's something in there for everybody. And that's just about it for this week. Thanks to James Dolman for his technical input and his insight into the wacky world of the processes of justice. Thanks to Frank BT2 for the memories and our thanks to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I've been John Cole. I'll see you next time.